Welcome to the Non-Technically Speaking Podcast. I am your host, Ivy Shu. Here, I interview leaders in tech with a non-technical background from established leading markets like Silicon Valley in Beijing to emerging markets like Nairobi and Jakarta. We explore what business and operations-minded leaders bring to tech companies and the impact that they're able to make. I may also pop in here to solo show and share some stories of my own. I hope that all this content inspires you to confidently develop your own impactful career as a non-technical leader in tech. Join the community of listeners and non-technical leaders by visiting nontechnicallyspeaking.com. Today, I am here with Andre Cheru. Andre was one of the first 25 employees at Uber and hired. Between the two, he launched the business in 18 cities in six countries. He is also the founder of Maple VC, an early stage venture fund with a Canadian founder focus. Thank you so much for being here, Andre. I'm so excited to have you. Absolutely. Super happy to be here too. I met you through the Canadian Circle from the Cairns Ridge Fellowship, and I know that you heavily invest in Canadian companies as founder of Maple VC, and also very involved with the C100. Have you found that being Canadian has really helped you in any part of your career? All of it. <laughs> it has completely helped uh, the entire the entire time. I didn't know it would help, or the dots would get so well connected early on in my career so uh but it no it's helped for the experience i've been able to get three of the four startups i was early at happened to have canadian founders at the helm so you know learning from them was great and uh, i now run a um, a co-chair of an of a nonprofit organization that's focused on expat canadians and uh organizing them in a way that could be helpful to canadian entrepreneurship and now with Maple, I'm uh, I'm investing in uh, yeah Canadian founders. So I think it's important that folks figure out whatever their niche is and like maybe even their unfair advantage. And dare I say, it's almost like an unfair advantage of me being Canadian and and being a part of some of the companies that I've been a part of that happen to be you know really great uh, outliers and and uh, rocket ships. And the founders of those companies, some of them were Canadian. I can't believe that a niche is a whole country. <laughs> I, know, I know, I know, that's, I know. It is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. But I, I always tell, you know, people that I mentor as well, that you want to stick yourself with any minority group or any community that you can really associate with. And there's just this natural bonding and closeness, which will really help you build your network within that community. I agree. Yeah. So let's start with those Canadian backgrounds. And yeah. so you studied economics at University of Toronto. Um, how did you find yourself moving into tech? Yeah, absolutely. So there's basically four phases of my career that helps kind of tell the story as to both how I got into tech and then ultimately now investing in uh, Canadian founders. So out of school, first phase was investment banking. I think it was, you know, where I gained a strong or... foundation in finance, sort of typical, yeah. right? But I didn't do it in Canada. I worked at a, a bank called Wachovia Securities. It was part of Wells Fargo. They didn't recruit at U of T. So that was pure hustle for me to figure out how to get that opportunity. I did have an offer on Wall Street, which I turned down for the M&A group at Wachovia. So that was your, that was my kind of first year. And then you might know the same, given your next 36 accolades, but uh, raise a statue taught me economics of entrepreneurship at U of T. 
And this was where he chose. I didn't realize those, those, that class was a precursor to the next 36. I was basically in 2004, one of the first 36 students chosen in his class. And he always sort of preached, put yourself in uncomfortable situations, but also go try to provide value or create value in the world. And so as much as he appreciated my start in investment banking, he was the one who said, get the heck out of it as soon as possible. See if you can kind of create value in the world. And so it was one year in Charlotte and then my second year as an analyst in, in the debt capital markets group in the UK, also based on his advice to get to a city that matters. And unfortunately, Charlotte in his mind did not matter. And so uh, I moved to London. And then after the two-year analyst program, second phase, based on his advice, while my peers went to business school, third-year analyst, hedge funds, private equity, I ended up starting a company uh, with my flatmate at the time. And that's what introduced me to Silicon Valley. I raised a bit of money. I moved out here in 2007 slash 2008. And so, you know, in that period of time, I was a recruiting startup at the time that I started. I I didn't know 2008 would happen. So the writing was (laughs) unfortunately on the wall. You can't sell recruiting software in the environment we entered in 2008. So I ultimately failed. But I think, A, I gained a network in the Valley, which is huge. And B... I gained, I would say, a true empathy for founders having kind of gone through it a little bit and gone through the battle for about three to four years. So that was phase two. Phase three was basically the last decade, right? Oh, nine to now. And I found my place in the ecosystem. And this is maybe how it relates to your theme around non-technical people or non-technical operators in the Valley. I basically found my place as a utility player. I wore any hat that was asked of me, especially in those scrappy early days. I joined four companies before there were 25 to 30 people. You're investing with your own time and resume and resources and money. And so I looked at those choices as bets, if you will. And two of them were right. I got, I got it right with two. And two of them were sort of wrong, even though What's funny is I think the two that were wrong, there were companies called Color Labs and Cinemagram. Color Labs was uh, the company that Sequoia backed in a $41 million round before anyone used our product. So I don't think I was the only crazy person. But it was pre-Instagram. And then Cinemagram, which was pre-Snapchat, also had follow-on funding from Menlo Ventures after I had joined so, so early. And so in both cases, I feel like I still picked the right category. And they weren't ridiculous bets, if you will. I think I still picked relatively right, but you know, it didn't work out for those two. The two that it did work out was Uber and Hired. I was fortunate to join Uber as a 25th employee and, and hired somewhere between the 10th and the 15th employee, somewhere around there. Both different rocket ships. Of course, you know, Uber is much more of a household name than, than Hired, uh, so different businesses, but it's been awesome to, to be able to contrast them and especially contrast them in the early days, right? Like, when I joined Uber, it, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't sort of a household name. It wasn't even a success. Most of actually my friends and family ridiculed me of joining a, a taxi company. <laughs> Big outcomes are, look very non-obvious in the beginning. And so it's funny, like you've got to have your own conviction. You can't ask others kind of what they think because if I listened to my friends, I wouldn't have joined Uber and I wouldn't have had that outlier experience. So that was essentially phase and obviously, during this phase, I gained an operational skill set. I understood and learned how to pick talent, both from a founder perspective profile 
and also just like hiring involved and fortunate to be in positions where I had to hire. I gained a skill set of launching markets. Some of those businesses were very offline, online to offline businesses. And to bring it back to non-technical individuals, I think that the more businesses become tech-enabled businesses versus like pure software businesses, there's an increased demand for non-technical skill set. Skill set I gained of launching markets, now probably launched somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 to 20 markets across seven uh, countries. Um, This is expertise that now founders who are starting companies are interested in, right? And so last phase, essentially phase four, is me starting Maple VC purely on this notion that if I hadn't seen the outlier success that both Uber and Hired have awarded me, even not the whole story, I was there for a short period of time at Uber, longer at Hired, but if I didn't get to see those early days, I wouldn't be in a position to understand what outlier outcomes look like, what outlier founders feel like, what outlier talent you know, also looks like. And so, Barely, barely uh, an outlier to you. <laughs> it's a 50% okay. success rate yeah. so far. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what I found in Maple on the Canada angle really quickly on kind of tying it back to coming back from Canada. When I started looking at some of these other massive outcomes that frankly actually went public recently, take Slack, your Butterfield, and even Wish, your founders are Canadian. Yeah. Instacart founder is Canadian. PagerDuty that went public, Canadian. Right. Cloudflare, who just went public, Canadian. Even the Red Hat gentleman who sold IBM, Canadian. <laughs> I just started looking at all of that, and I didn't find, at least from my research, there was no Canadian capital on any of their cap tables. And so none of that capital or returns and value creation that was created will make its way back to Canada, where all of these people are from and where we're from. And it just irked me in a way that moved me to say, hey, if I can create a vehicle to invest, even in the small stages and the small checks that I can do now in this Canadian diaspora, maybe this is a, a way to impact Canada, where they're not off, these people are not off the radar off of the capital that is growing in Canada. But for whatever reason, if someone decides to start a company in China or wherever, it, it shouldn't preclude Canadian capital from making its way onto their cap table, right? So. That was essentially the, the really simple thesis. And thankfully, having launched Uber in Canada, both Uber and Hired, I felt like I was in a position where I could see some of the best founders and uh, at why they're, whether they're in Canada or outside of Canada. And now I'm essentially putting that thesis to work. Wow, so much Canadian pride. <laughs> so I have a ton of follow-up questions yep. to what you just said. Yep. Um, thinking about the order of how to ask them, let's start with this conviction of finding the right company to join, right? So yep. you've landed on two rocket ships, uh, a 50% yep. success rate out of four where you join as the first few 25 employees yep. is yep. way higher than most people. And now you're making bets yourself. What do you look for when you decide to join a company? And what do you look for before you invest, if that's any different? Yeah, great, great question. I think at the time, it would be much harder for me to articulate it, right? So now I've more so codified it as hindsight becomes twenty twenty, And I can like kind of weave in the different right. patterns. But at the time, yeah, I don't think I would be able to answer this question <laughs> as 
what I think is a little more eloquent. But there is a rubric that I use that's a, across a number of dimensions. In fact, I've been very inspired by Peter Thiel's Zero to One book. There's seven questions he asked. I asked those seven questions. But what's interesting, the context that I've been able to gain from the experience makes those questions come to life. And I've kind of put my own spin on on each of them. But without going to that detail, really and truly, it comes down for me to the people. And I now put founders in three buckets. And I call it, with no offense against each of them, I call it zeros, ones, and twos. And zeros, for lack of a better word, are your like inventor types. Ones are your builder types. And twos are your operator types. What I have found is when you ask a inventor type the vision of the company, what they're building, and let's call that vision step five in a step five process, they can communicate a very compelling future that you're like, wow, you know, that is exciting and I can get behind that vision. And when you also look at their background from a skill set perspective, you're also pretty compelled, like, wow, you have the skill set necessary to create that future, right? Whether that be technical, which is generally, I would say, in that bucket is more mm-hmm. so technical than, than non-technical. However, I've found that when you ask someone step one in that process or an inventor type step one in that process, I found it to be less clear uh, or compelling because, again, as mentioned earlier, the step one or the starting point in most massive outcomes are very non-obvious. And yeah. so it's going to look strange and Someone needs to have a really high conviction as to why they're starting with what they're starting at to then build into step five. And so steps so of zeros are sort of, they fulfill the step five component. And when you ask a builder uh, vision, they have this ability to not only communicate step five as well in their own way, so they have the clarity on step one. And I suspect there was a vision that Bezos communicated for him to start with books to become the everything store. I experienced it with Travis Kalanick at Uber, where in my interview process, I asked him, what's the vision of Uber? And verbatim, pretty much, I might be paraphrasing a little bit here, but he basically said, we are going to deliver you anything. We're building a logistics engine for a city, but it just so happens to be a black car that takes you from point A to point B, and we're going to maniacally focus on that for however long it takes. Now, when I think back, the clarity of thought around limos as a starting point was almost genius to me for it to build into what is today. And frankly, what he's working on with Cloud Kitchen is like he's still focused on delivering you anything. Um, Now it just happens to be food. Sorry, could Um, I interrupt for one second? Why do you think that limos were was the best way to start? And what would have looked like had they started with UberX or Uber Pools? No, it's a good question. And I would cite the book Crossing the Chasm, where there's different phases of early adopters to pragmatists, to conservatives, to laggers. If a company decides to go directly to its largest market, pragmatists in this case, you skip the early adopters. I've found those companies to not necessarily hit mass adoption because they skipped this early community. And whatever that early community is, founders know this better than I do, but I think pattern recognition shares tells me that you do need to find your early niche obsessive, especially for consumer user base, for you to get to build the customer experience that you're looking to build. There's a lot of 
mistakes you're going to make to get to that product market fit. And I think limos was that for Travis. If you think also about 2009, 2010, the timing piece for this was impeccable. I think back in NFX writes some really great material on timing, which I've done a lot of thinking about. We're co-investors in a company called Setter, and um, they break it into three parts called enabling tech, economic impetus, and cultural buy-in. For enabling tech, Google didn't release their Maps API until 2010, so you couldn't put a map on a phone. That wow. wasn't even possible. And so ride-sharing became a thing. It's no surprise that ride-sharing became a worldwide phenomenon post-2010 not pre-2010 because of the simple components that you couldn't put a map on a phone. That's one piece. The second piece, which is more related to your question, why limo not X, from an economic impetus perspective, this question is more like, I remember when pitching out limousine drivers and I was saying, you can make money from this phone in your pocket for the two hours that your car is idle each day. And the sheer surprise and delight that their face lit up with that value proposition I'm not sure what would have happened if 2008 financial crisis didn't happen, right? Like if coming out of that money on demand fashion wouldn't have likely been, I think, interesting if it was like a bull run, for example. Like I think those limousine drivers have been like, I have enough business. No, thank you. Not interested. Sounds crazy. But they were actually open. And today we call that the gig economy. But in 2011, it didn't have that term. Right. So I think because the gig economy wasn't a thing, X wouldn't have not been possible. So that's the second reason. And then the third, from a cultural perspective, and why X couldn't have happened either, is it's funny, in, in tech, in Silicon Valley, sometimes one big success begets someone else's success. So like when I think about Snapchat and sort of my experience from Cinegram, Snapchat wouldn't have been Snapchat or created if it wasn't for Facebook, who had the most persistent photos online. If Facebook didn't have that many photos online globally, Snapchat wouldn't be a thing. The disappearing photos wouldn't be a need, wouldn't be, you know? And so when I look at Uber, thanks to Airbnb, I think founded in 2008, put in all the hard work around this thing that we now call the sharing economy, but that wasn't a thing. And so I think if we tried to enable strangers to pick folks up immediately, uh, right out of the gate, it would have fell flat and then you wouldn't have had a company. I love when a founder can communicate why, and that, they're not entirely sure. We didn't know UberX was a thing, like, right? But we just went ahead first with what we believed would be an audience that we could enable this software layer on top of this current existing system called Limos and do it in a way that they envisioned pressing a button and getting a ride. And that's what then enabled owning that niche, owning it, getting a large majority of that niche is what enabled them to ask the question, well, wow, people really like this service, but we're out of limos in the market. So what about that car across the street? How do we activate that car? And you don't ask those innovative questions if you don't own a niche, essentially. And so that's why UberX is not a niche. It's It's like a global expansion of the market. So if you went directly there, you got to get it so right, which is rare for it to work and for you to sort of matter to a large sum of people. And that crossing of the chasm is a, is a really good uh, framework to think through how to launch business. So I put those people who figure out that starting point in this builder one bucket. The last bucket to come up is these twos who have coined to be like they're operators. And what I found is not that they can't come up with a starting point that's compelling or a vision that's 
equally as compelling. But I feel like their spikes in terms of their efforts and their abilities and their skill set, they have more spikes as it relates to step two, three, and four. So you give them a starting point, you give them a vision, and they like run hard to operationalize that vision like nobody else. Like the one couldn't do it and the zero couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And so I basically am making a call. I believe the most valuable companies to be created on the planet are the ones that can attract the most zeros, ones, and twos. And as people, we are, can, we are attracted to people like ourselves. So if you are a zero, you're likely going to attract other zeros and ones and twos and so forth. But there's this special thing about ones who are able to attract the spectrum. They're able to like tell a zero, hey, don't worry about the starting point. Go and like tinker on the future. And then two, I don't even know how to operationalize this thing. You, you should just go. And they just give them this leeway. Famous ones you could imagine are like, I think a Sheryl Sandberg to a Mark Zuckerberg is a two versus kind of one. And I think there's probably a bunch of zeros there as well. I think Jeff Bezos has his version of that. Eric Schmidt is that to Larry Page and Sergey Brin. There's a bunch of these that the companies don't really work if you don't have these numbers. And I'm basically making a call now that I have some feeling as to what that might look like with the companies that have joined, I'm trying to make a call as to whether these founders could be a one in the making. And you can get early signals based on like five employees, even advisors they hang out with. And so that's essentially part of the analysis that I'm doing as it relates to people. Right. Um, so just to reiterate and confirm that you're looking for founders who are ones and that they can attract the twos and zeros in their guess, early stage employees before you Correct. join. So right. other than the founders themselves, what about the industry and the bigger picture? What they operate in is less controllable. It's yes. harder to predict. Yes. No, absolutely. And there are these seven questions again that I've learned, studied deeply inspired by Peter Thiel that, that I go through and uh, try to evaluate. The timing piece is one of them, but we can go through them really quickly. And the first one is essentially, you know, what is just the 10x solution to this problem that you're solving? That's one. The second is timing, which is broken into those three parts, enabling tech, economic impetus, and cultural buy-in. Most of it is hard to communicate because what's kind of happening culturally, economically, from a technology standpoint, that's making this business possible today versus three years ago or maybe three years from now, so you're not too early. That one for me, such a big one, uh, kind of similar to the talent piece that I like to dig in on. The third one is monopoly. So just kind of explaining this idea about Uber starting point and owning a small market. I think the genius that benchmark investors made there was while most VCs said no to Uber Series A because it was, a, I believe, an $11 billion market, Bill Gurley and the folks at Benchmark asked, I think, different questions and really asked, well, what if they got a majority of this market? Like, what happens then? Does this business look super interesting beyond the $11 billion market? And I kind of believe most markets are adjacent to others. So as much as VCs kind of say, get a big market, big market, big market, you know, I actually argue that for things to work, and I experienced this personally, was you got to actually get a large percentage of a small market first. So I look for that as well. And that kind of speaks to the founder's ability to communicate step one, right? Mm -hmm. and so yeah. they're all kind of connected. And then number, uh, what are we at? Number the tech, timing, monopoly. Number four is distribution. So I obsess about, I don't believe the best products win. I think the most distributed products do. 
And what's ironic about that is when you become the most distributed product, you then get the resources to become the best product. I look for creative ways, not paid channels. It really irks me if someone is using some form of paid channels to acquire customers. You're not going to be able to. It's not as sustainable. Versus, yeah. Yeah, versus other folks who have been raised, and especially in our environment, continue to raise more capital than you. My question here to the founders is: What intermediary can you make a hero that's going to publicize or sell your product on behalf of you? And it's something that doesn't put you off course as to what your product or service is. And I'll give you an example. In the early Uber days, the way we got riders, which wasn't organic because no one wanted to truly pay 50% more than a taxi to ride around in a town car. It was a little strange, right? Like that value proposition was not a no brainer for people to sign up and use. And so we used event planners and uh, event planners for swanky events, like the perfect distribution channel because we made them look good. We gave free rides as, as sort of an in-kind sponsorship to their attendees, both to and from, and we're able to sort of manufacture a wow experience because it was in a staged environment. We knew when the event was going to happen. We knew what time, you know, you could kind of make supply and demand meet. And also you can hack your way into two out of the, like hack your way into sort of the number of times you need to acquire a customer before they become a customer for life. Every company is different for that number. Right. I heard it was like seven friends at, at Facebook. At Facebook. Yeah. You know, well, it was three rides for Uber and an event got us two thirds of the way there. And so it was just the perfect distribution channel, which wasn't obvious in the beginning. We had to test and test and test and test. And so I look forward to brainstorming with uh, founders around their thoughts and creatively get their product or service in the hands of their customers. So that's number five. And then six is defensibility. Uh, or, or am I at five? Uh, five is defensibility. <laughs> defensibility is the way I think about this question now, in my experience, uh, this one speaks to hired, is what is the strategic asset that you are aggregating over some period of time, the life of the business, that the market's going to like reward you for? You know, when I think about the recruiting space, there's been job boards that have aggregated jobs. But in many ways, they weren't able to actually extract a lot of value. Like the most largest job board is extracted maybe a billion dollars out of the market. Uh, whereas on the flip side to that, LinkedIn's asset became digital resumes of professionals, and they extracted $26 billion out of the market. That's the difference between whether you figure out your strategic asset or not. And, and if you get it wrong, the market won't reward you. I think that's literally the most or the way that a company is defensible if the founder can think through what's their asset that they're acquiring. So that's mm-hmm. defensibility. And then six is team, the zeros, ones, and twos framework is what I apply there. And then lastly, Peter Thiel kind of coins his secret question, which he likes to ask, which is kind of like, what do you believe that others do not? What do you, you see that others do not? For me, this is the underlying belief system that these founders are kind of on and the journey that they're on. And, and, and when you something looks like it's, possibly similar to a competitor on its surface. I'm looking for like, how is this going to be different? Thank you so much for digging so deep into that. I'm going to go reread zero to one. (laughs) I think that's what I should have done before asking this question. But um, the examples 
that you gave are wonderful. Uh, my first Uber ride was actually from an event in Toronto. Oh my gosh, that's um, so I, great. I remember the days where Uber would be promoting, you know, take your date out of yep. the restaurant, the car will just show up, like impress her, et cetera. I, yeah, yep. I remember. <laughs> and I totally forgot also that Google Maps, for example, only came out in 2010. Right, phone. right. <laughs> I feel like it's just, I use it every day, you know? And I know, I know. It's been a I long know. time. So back to when you were answering the previous question, another follow-up question that I had was you said that when you joined all these early stage startups that you really played yourself in a utility kind of role where I interpret it as jack of all trades, right? So I think that many listeners, also people who are coming from a non-technical background have trouble feeling validated in that they're contributing Mm. value to tech companies. What do you think it takes to succeed and what value can non-technical people bring to both early stage startups as well as more established companies? Yeah, no, really great question. And in looking through my background, I think as I left that company that I founded, I remember the struggle of pitching myself in interview process because I didn't know what like I could do, right? Like what role should I be hired for? And many, many of the roles were created for me, thankfully. The way I got some of those jobs and the first one being at Color, which was uh, the title was a product marketing manager, was A, having like a deep view on the space and the company's approach, at least for what I could find online at the time, and also talking to people close to the company. And so in the interview process, it was me basically acting as if I was there with a whole host of ideas and a whole bunch of questions that I guess moved them enough to like, this person could be helpful on the team because we need to be thinking about these questions that maybe they hadn't heard, who knows, or ideas that that I had. And, And be willing to put yourself out there was one way that I got those jobs. And then after... Uh, consecutively, I, I began to find a niche in this, and I guess a lot of non-technical people get put into this bucket of like business development. Product marketing being, the way I positioned that was, because I might be the user myself, I know how to kind of communicate to that user. And essentially, it's messaging, right? Like both messaging and the product, based messaging from the marketing standpoint. And so one might lean more towards kind of marketing. I do think it's helpful to figure out what department you can lean into and then look back at your skill set and see, you know, what could be leveraged. Some people go into finance. If they were bankers, great. That's a great way. And you also need to figure what your way in. Once you're in, you can navigate the org, especially in the startup land, depending on how early you join though. But like you can, you could generally navigate it better than other larger, more established organizations. You should try to find a department that you could lean into versus the jack of all trades thing where you don't fit anywhere. That, that I found was really hard. So no different than launching a company, own a niche somehow with your skills. Say, you know, I'm going to own corp dev. In many ways, I think everyone is a one. It just depends on the context of what you're working on. Right. And so maybe in the context of of a massive ginormous startup, you're not the founder or the leader of that, but you could be the one in the department of the corp dev department because you see things differently. You have an ability to attract a range of skill sets 
to attack the problem uh, that you need to attack. Figure out what your could be off the mat, what you have an unfair advantage at, and then position it into one of the you know very structured departments that aren't going to really change. I think business is business, and then you'll add value. Those companies are going to need to have those departments. They might not need it in the first year or two, and that might be harder for you to join a company at that point because they just need engineers to ship products. That's okay. Faster, you can find a niche, use your unfair advantage, and map that according to some department. Uh, you'll find value in that. For sure. I actually also went the utility jack of all trades route when I first started, and that was. Cool. Pretty big mistake because during the interview, I would find that the feedback that I get is, "Do you really want to do this role that we're hiring for?" Right? Because no company wants someone who comes in and wants to switch right away and says, "Oh, I can do this and a bit of that, and I want to do this." But really, we just want you to do that specific role properly. And I think what you said that I also really resonated with was the first example that you gave when you joined the first startup for the product marketing. Rule, where you came up with a bunch of questions and the way that you were thinking about their business, and I think that non-technical roles, the company relies on you to think critically about what they're supposed to be targeting, what's next for the user, for distribution, right. for how to bring this product to market. Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Great. One last question, <laughs> the yeah. main thing, and it's more to do with hired. Um, yeah. So I was looking up on the website and I understand it as an AI matching platform for sure. candidates as well, yep. between candidates and employees Definitely. or employers. Yep. Say that hired will move towards more non-technical roles. I did see on the website that there's yeah. some product management or project management, business analyst, et cetera. And whether there are skills tests for those or not, what skills do you look for when you hire for these roles? Yeah, no, good, good question. I mean, I do think there will be a future where every role, regardless of technical or non-technical, will need to showcase skills and folks will create unique tests for that with the likes of these behemoths like Uber that have sort of popularized the notion that a business employee is very valuable. I'd say pre-Uber, I remember hearing in the Valley in 2006 to 2009, for every business person or MBA, you like subtract value versus add value. I saw that. I I saw this. hearing that. Yeah, it was like every software engineer, you increase (laughs) the value of your startup by a million. And for every MBA, you decrease by (laughs) half a million. (laughs) What? Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. That's horrible. Like, then you have like the Uber where like, you know, I was, I was fortunate to hire the very first Uber GM of Toronto, which was one of our first international cities at the time, a gentleman by the name of Andrew McDonald. And Andrew today has recently been promoted to basically run all global operations for all of Uber reporting at the CEO of Uber. And for him to kind of go that far and that distance to answer questions specifically around what I look for and how I fortunately got it really right with Andrew McDonald and also sort of as a tangent what was cool was uh, the runner up to Andrew McDonald Neelam Ganentrium and Neelam ended up becoming employee three at Instacart and is Instacart's president today and like again stroke of luck that like I was able to I didn't influence him to join Instacart but you know he was going to get an offer from Uber if Andrew didn't take it and so in many ways I've been able to like learn from that and be like why did how did these two gentlemen Go from being scrappy early, you know, sub 50 in Max case and sub five <laughs> employee at Neelan's case to 
being an executive at double digit billion dollar companies. Like, like it's sort of insane to me to see that trajectory. And it actually came down to what I think. And as I talked to a few others around them of what really stood out, there's three to four themes, kind of like soft issues. They're not necessarily your hardcore skills because I think almost those skills are kind of table stakes today. Like most people ambitious to get into this, they have the skills necessary to get the job done. It's, it's all the other factors. And a few of those factors, one is grit, which Angela Duckworth wrote an amazing book on that. Mm-hmm. I would have to do it justice, but like, can someone get up time and time again if they fail? Because you will fail multiple times as a startup. Two, like a growth mindset, like where you're not looking at the day-to-day struggle, which will obviously be these massive ups and downs, but can you see the trend line? And is the trend line going up? And can you communicate around that? Because a lot of people can't see the trend line. So uh, I think they were able to motivate others around that trend line versus others may have not seen that. And third is self-awareness capability, where how you make someone else feel. Because a startup brings out extreme emotions in someone, right? Both on the negative side and on the positive side, because it's just so dynamic of an environment that you're being stretched in. And you're going to be probably the most emotional person that you version of yourself that you ever have, uh, in a, at least in a professional setting. And so it, you will rub people the wrong way. And those who can figure out how to make people feel good and make people feel support and just be able to have empathy in the right way to control your emotions, I think is just like a, a hard skill set to gain. Say, lastly, they, I think, what I've learned, put their ass on the line and, and made some personal bets at the company. They didn't just do what was told. They like literally did over and above and they wrote playbooks. And now maybe they were early enough to influence that. But I think as a startup early employee, you need to demonstrate that you're not just going to do what is asked. In the early stage, you need someone that's going to uh, go all in on some bet, you know, and have their whole reputation tied up in it. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, that's okay. And I think both of them were able to do that in very critical areas that helped the company grow, both in talent, they created a playbook as to who to hire, and then also in growth. Cool. That actually concludes the interview portion. Uh, We have uh, two quick fire questions. And one of them, which you've already recommended so many different books, Zero to One, The Who Method. Uh, I think you recommended one more. What was it? Uh, Did I recommend one more? Uh, no, grit, I, think, I think I grit. Oh, oh, yeah. grit. Yeah, sorry. Good yeah, so yeah, three yeah. different I books. Um, so the <laughs> the question is, what is a book that you recommend people most often? Yeah, <laughs> can yeah, it be a different yeah. book, not those three? So what's interesting about books to me now that I've learned a little bit more in my career, a book doesn't mean anything to, if if you don't have the context, and so it, it doesn't like illuminate in your yeah. mind as like zero to one did. If I didn't right go place, through right time. Both yeah, those four experiences, like it would just be some theory that maybe I would use as a rubric to ask founders, but like, I don't think you would get anything from it. You know what right, I mean? Right, right. And I think Shoot Dog has, was probably one of the most entrepreneurial gritty journeys uh, that has sort of ever been told and follows a lot of the stuff we shared today in many capacities, but through a story. I, I don't really love framework books. I love reading stories. And again, if I wasn't on the journey, I'm like constantly looking to find early employees at these companies to ask them what the journey is so I can add it to my pattern playbook. And, um, and like listening about the early days of Nike, not the sort of Nike we know post 
80, 90, like the pre Nike, like it is fascinating. Um, and, and I think it's helpful for both founders to know what it takes to build something great and big and, and all the serendipity that will could happen along the way, but also even for early employees joining these folks. That's awesome. That last question, quick fire cool. is what is, I hate using superlatives, but the best piece of advice that you've been given that has been applied to your career? Yep. Um, it was from Razor Statue, which was put yourself in uncomfortable situations because it's literally the only way you will grow. And it's against our nature to do that in, at any point in life. He was more focused earlier on in one's career to do that. Um, and I think I followed that pretty much to a T from like leaving Canada to going into investment banking in a place I didn't know of, then leaving the comfort of that investment banking to go start a company, going to another place. And now even fast forward all the way and all the uncomfortable positions I've been in joining the companies I have joined, I had to leave the country and kind of come back and jump back into it again. In many ways, Maple as a fund is putting me in the same position <laughs> of just being uncomfortable finding and putting real dollars, other people's money too, to, to work. Uh, but I keep looking at the fact that I keep learning exponentially when I do that. So I'm going to try my damnedest to like do that throughout my life. Yeah. And throughout my career. Yeah. I'm excited to see what's next then uh, for you. <laughs> but thank you very much. Thank you so much for doing this with me today. I'm, Absolutely. I think that we got so much valuable information out. So yes. Great. thank you so much. Andre is always looking to connect with more Canadian founders or Canadians in emerging markets. So if you are a founder or someone working abroad, please don't hesitate to add him on LinkedIn. His name is Andre Charou, A-N-D-R-E-C-H-A-R-O-O. Hope you guys can connect. That's it for episode one. If you loved it, have questions, or have any specific topics or regions you'd like me to cover, I'd love to connect and be friends. Please send me a direct message on Instagram at IVXVine. If this episode has helped you out at all, it would be incredible if you can share it with another non-technical in tech and leave me a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Thank you guys so much and see you on the next episode.